If you want to get an insight into why Thomas Beckett was to end up murdered in Canterbury Cathedral, we need to tell the tale of the one and only Englishman who ever held the title of Pope, and who became Pope in the years just before Thomas became the Archbishop of Canterbury. Nicholas Breakspear was born in Hertfordshire, and he appears to have been the illegitimate son of a priest from the town of Abbots Langley. Of his early life, there is very little known, but he became a monk and a priest and seems to have travelled to Europe to begin his rise in church circles. He was said to be a charismatic man, but demanding and strict, so demanding that when he was placed in charge of abbeys, for example, the monks under his authority actually rebelled against him. Still, he showed talent as a preacher and as an organiser. It was for this reason that he came to the attention of the popes, and he was appointed a papal legate. Long-term listeners may remember I actually mentioned Nicholas Breakspear back in chapter 66, hanging around the Iberian Peninsula, where he was aiding Count Berenger of Barcelona begin the process that was to become the Reconquista, and convincing English crusaders on the way to the Holy Land to not bother going all the way there, but rather stay here and join in with local campaigns against Muslims. Later, Nicholas Breakspear was sent to Scandinavia, and there he gained his greatest glory, where he reorganised the Norwegian church, ending, I suppose, the narrative I spoke of all the way back in chapter 38 of the Norwegians and their problematic relationship with the Christian faith. It was in light of his work up in the far north that when Pope Eugenius passed, and after a brief rule of an elderly man as Pope for one year, Nicholas Breakspear was elevated to the position of Pope about two weeks after King Henry II had been crowned King of England. Which meant that Henry now had a man who was on paper one of his subjects holding the position of Pope. This was awesome. And soon after, King Henry II saw an opportunity to exploit this. For it seems he had an idea about growing his power, Having just gained so much of France recently, and, and England now, Henry was looking for some new free real estate. He was looking at Ireland. For whatever reason, Henry II got it into his head that he wished to take Ireland to give to his younger brother William to rule. And so he sent a delegation to meet with this English Pope because Henry II knew that the same way William of Normandy had gained papal blessing to invade England in 1066, he would want the similar blessing to invade Ireland here in 1155. Alas for the King's delegation, when they arrived they found the English Pope had already made a diplomatic link with England. Archbishop Theobald of Canterbury had sent a man called John of Salisbury to meet with Nicholas Breakspear, and John and Nicholas were old friends, and very close. As it was, this John of Salisbury was the person who secured for Henry II the agreement he wanted, but on the Pope's terms, not the King's. Nicholas Breakspear, now styling himself Pope Adrian II, did indeed give Henry permission to invade Ireland, but under very strict terms. Firstly, said the Pope, only he could grant him this blessing because the Pope was, by tradition, 
the lord over all islands on this planet, big or small, wherever they were, a power which was given by God and could never be revoked. Pope Adrian therefore reminded the new king of England that, technically speaking as Pope, he was the overlord of Ireland, and that therefore he would allow Henry invade the place and run it strictly as a vessel of Pope Adrian. Henry II rejected this idea out of hand. I mean, partly because if he accepted it, it meant that he was implicitly accepting Adrian as overlord of all islands, including the island of England he'd just taken, but also because, well, from Henry's point of view, it would make him, king of England, a vassal to a low-born subject of his. And not just that, well, a subject who was illegitimate to have any kind of standing over him? Henry of Angel? Never. And so Henry rejected Adrian's proposal and was furious and would sit on the idea of a campaign in Ireland for many years. And then Adrian II died and during his tenure, actually, the most significant thing that was going on was the changing and dangerous relationship between the Pope and the new Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, and that was to lead to a powerful schism in Europe as subsequent popes and the great, big, powerful Germanic king would wage war for supremacy. But the story, as I just told us, is an important benchmark for all that was to come. This king would accept no low-born priest to act like his equal. Not then, not ever. Nor would he ever accept a low-born priest to defy him, even if they hid behind the power of the church. Again, not then, not ever. And if you can remember anything about the story of Thomas Beckett, yeah, you can kind of see where this is going. Hi, my name is Saul, and this is The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to the tale of the city, as seen from the point of view of the residents at the time. This episode, we examine the latter part of the life of Thomas Beckett, the Londoner who rose to the highest ranks in the land and whose death was to impact upon the city. And we also examine how London was to try and cope with their native son and his clash, not just with a powerful king, but also with the city's bishop. Welcome then to chapter 71 of the story and part two of the tale of Thomas of London, The Men of God. In 1160, Henry II was King of England, an ambitious, passionate and aggressive king with a chip on both his shoulders and the manners of a schoolyard bully. Thomas Becket was his hard-working chancellor, trying to cope with his capricious king and no longer in his master's best graces. And the Archbishop of Canterbury, the wise and widely Theobald, was poorly. He was being carried about in a horse litter these days, probably laid low by stomach ulcers. Theobald was an angry man in his illness. He felt betrayed. He felt betrayed by Thomas Becket. Becket had been his man, his closest advisor. He had arranged for Thomas to become Chancellor. And yet Thomas had not been his agent in the court of the king. To Theobald, Becket was now covered in rich splendour and had turned his back on serving him, had ceased to be the loyal servant of the Archbishop of Canterbury. 
Of course, the truth was Thomas could not serve two masters. In the near decade since he'd become chancellor, he only had the ability to serve the king, and so he had done so. But Archbishop Theobald still felt betrayed, and we see the extent of this feeling of betrayal in the archbishop's final months. As the old man laid up in bed, being fed pulp by a spoon and beginning to sort out his worldly affairs, there is no mention of Thomas Becket in the old man's will. There's no blessing for him, no prayers for the safety of his souls dedicated. This was his closest and most trusted adviser. The Chancellor was never mentioned once. And then Theobald died. And it took Henry II about a year before he picked a new Archbishop of Canterbury. But it was clear he knew exactly who he wanted to hold the post from the get-go. And this choice was actually dictated by his six-year-old son. See, Henry II's eldest boy was called Henry, or Prince Henry, or Henry of Woodstock by modern historians, because boy, are there a lot of Prince Henrys in English history, and we have to tell them apart. And Henry II, being as properly French as a king of England should be, wanted to do a French thing that the kings of France were doing, and that is crown the heir to the throne as king in advance of the previous king dying. The idea was brand new to England and had never been seen before until the previous king, King Stephen, had tried to do it with his son, Prince Eustace. But that had led to the carnage I described in chapter 66. Henry II wanted to do it again, and he had a cunning plan. Henry's cunning plan was simple. Thomas Becket would become the Archbishop of Canterbury and be Chancellor at the same time. And in effect, in the event of Henry II dying, Becket would become a de facto Viceroy of England under the infant Henry III until he comes of age. And if not all-powerful, then Thomas would work with a Regency Council led by Robert de Beaumont. Henry II had already placed his son Prince Henry into Becket's household to be educated, and his son was already very fond of his Uncle Thomas. It was for Henry a nice and easy and simple solution. It would, in his mind, prevent church v. state arguments, as Thomas always obeyed the king. I mean, he'd even done it in the rows after the siege of Toulouse, hadn't he? And as joint chancellor and archbishop, Thomas could be the king's deputy in England when Henry II was abroad. It was a grand and simple idea. Of course, Henry needed permission of the Pope to do this, as King Stephen had needed it, because... England wasn't used to this idea, and so it was a new ritual. And because it was a new ritual, it needed papal blessing. So Henry got a license from the new Pope, Alexander II, to allow Prince Henry be crowned as king-to-be. And he also got a couple of extra little special allowances added to it. So, for example, if there was no working Archbishop of Canterbury, any random local bishop could crown the young prince king. But basically, because of all of this, it was clear that by 1162, Thomas Becket knew he was going to become the new Archbishop of Canterbury. It was common knowledge for everyone at the time. One prior summed it up best when he said the king wanted Thomas to become the Archbishop of Canterbury, quote, because he trusted him beyond all men to aid his heirs to the throne in case he himself should be no more, unquote. However, with his new permissions from the Pope, 
Henry II acted with the raw haste he always acted upon. With the new warrants, he pushed the ceremony forward, but experienced unexpected resistance from the bishops of England. This was happening way too fast for them. They were unhappy, unsure, uncertain. This was a huge ceremonial change for the nation. Maybe we should wait until there was a new Archbishop of Canterbury, Your Majesty? The many bishops in the Grand Diocese of the Archbishopric resisted, and this annoyed Henry. And their resistance meant they would only invest Prince Henry as heir, but not crown him as king. In May 1162, Prince Henry was indeed invested as heir, and all the barons took oaths of fealty and loyalty to the young prince. But to Henry II, this was bungled. He wanted his son to be king-in-waiting. He was annoyed. Still, the election of Thomas Becket took place, with King Henry's political machine working full out to make it happen. There were objections to his appointment as Archbishop of Canterbury, and they were strong. I mean, Thomas was the Chancellor, and that was the problem. He was a secular man, a wealthy man, a man who engaged in warfare. He wasn't even a priest. But the political machine of King Henry smiled through gritted teeth and told all these bishops, promised them even, that it would be fine. The Chancellor Archbishop would rock. In Westminster Abbey on May 23rd, 1162, Thomas Becket became Archbishop of Canterbury, with little now seven-year-old Prince Henry saying he recognised the choice on behalf of his father. Oh, it was so cute. Only one voice was raised in objection that day, a former ally of the late Archbishop Theobald's. And oddly enough, a man who was a stalwart supporter of the Anjouan faction and of Queen Matilda and her son Henry, a man called Gilbert Folliot. He was, at the time, the Bishop of Hereford, and he was Abbot of Gloucester Abbey, a strict vegetarian, a respected theologian, and the scion of a fairly well-to-do noble family. And he called out Thomas Becket, reminding everyone that Thomas wasn't even a priest, and that in church terms, a man not fit to hold an oar in the great ship of the church should not be elevated to become the captain of the damn ship. His wasn't the sole voice of dissent, by the way. Close reading of several sources suggests that the choice of Becket was highly contested, but in the end, Henry II prevailed. And so Thomas went to Canterbury to become consecrated, and just before he took the highest priestly rank in the country, he had to, like, you know, become a priest, and he underwent the solemn ceremony, and all was well for about a few weeks. And the break between the king and the archbishop came almost at once, to be honest. See, King Henry had fatally miscalculated. Thomas was a man of great faith, born from a childhood in London, as we said last chapter. And he was now Archbishop of Canterbury. Technically, the only person on earth who outranked the 42-year-old Londoner was Pope Alexander, who was, at this moment in time, having to run around the French countryside, avoiding the armies of Frederick Barbarossa. But still, Thomas now had power. And as such, it was Thomas who started the split between the two men. And he did so by doing the one thing King Henry simply could not have imagined he would do, but Theobald would have told him he probably was going to do. Thomas could not serve two masters, and as such, 
He resigned the post of Chancellor that autumn, when Henry and Queen Eleanor were over on the continent. Henry had no idea it was coming, and bellowing the words, By God's eyes! He flew into a huge rage and unleashed a stream of vitriol against Thomas for betraying him. Thomas, for his part, immediately went about the post of Archbishop of Canterbury the same way he had gone about the post of Chancellor of England, working at a ferocious rate and top speed, and he began the process of reclaiming lands that had been taken from the church during the anarchy. And quickly the nobles he was shafting, sorry, the nobles he was negotiating with began complaining to, that's right, King Henry. And even if Henry made a big show when he returned to England of being delighted that his best friend was Archbishop of Canterbury, the two men were separated by a political distance now. Henry had not been idle, stuck in Europe and unable to cross the channel that winter due to storms. He had met with Pope Alexander in secret and several accords had been reached. So that when Becket turned up a few months later to meet the Pope and do his grand project of getting the previous postholder of Archbishop Anselm recognised as a saint, the Pope wasn't biting. This and a few of the things took place when Becket first met him, which showed that Alexander II wasn't going to back Becket the way he thought he was. For Thomas, this was the first measure of his own limitations. The prelate was only as powerful as his own skill at politics, and Thomas, Thomas felt he was lacking. So he returned to England and then immediately ran into a new issue. He was summoned to the king's new hall in Woodstock, up in Oxfordshire. Another meeting at a place which the king had created a petting zoo filled with lions, leopards, camels and even a porcupine, he ran into Henry's latest tax reform. Henry, you see, was trying to get rid of the old Danegilder tax, which had remained for many centuries even after the Vikings had long gone, but of late was mostly extracted from the peasants of England, and after the costs needed to gather it, it only raised a paltry £5,000 a year, hardly worth it. Henry decided to get rid of this and figured a way to make up the shortfall. He would just dissolve the sheriff's aid. These were the expensive sheriffs claimed to collect taxes for the king. In short, this was their income for doing the job. Becket kind of ended up leading the opposition to this reform, not because he was Archbishop of Canterbury, so much as because, well, during his time working for Osborne Eightpence, he knew it was a bad idea. And so the two men clashed again. But the event that triggered the biggest row between these two men, well, that took place in the crowded streets of London. In and around the church of St. Mary Le Beau, the church which was fairly close to where the Beckett family home was, a priest was caught having stolen a silver chalice from the church and was sent to be tried. Legally, however, this created an issue. You see, priests and clergy came under church law, a separate school of jurisprudence and legality, which effectively meant that members of the clergy had their own courts and would be tried and judged separately to the secular civil legal authorities. This was an issue for Henry II. Like some 12th century sensationalist tabloid journalist, he would constantly rail against it, like the church courts were a soft option. For the record, under Becket's term as Archbishop of Canterbury, it wasn't actually a soft option at all. In civil law cases at the time, all defendants were innocent until proven guilty. But we've got at least one case of a priest accused of murder up in Salisbury, where the prosecution could not prove the priest's guilt, 
but neither could the priest prove his innocence. So Beckett ordered him unfrocked and sent to live in a monastery effectively for life. The presumption of innocence was not granted to the defendant. And the same applied to the priest accused of that theft in the St. Mary Lebeau case. Beckett's court, and one wonders if this was the court of archers on Cheapside where this took place, ruled that the priest should be defrocked and therefore lose his only income. Henry II wasn't happy with this. This was a high-profile case. He wanted the former priest handed over to the secular courts for mutilation and death. That's what you do to thieves. Church law prevented the death penalty, but did allow for former priests to be handed over to secular courts, usually in cases of heresy, it should be said, not theft. But the king wanted to punish the thief, and Beckett relented and handed him over. But afterwards, he tried to maintain a strict line on such things. The church would police its own, mostly because the state would often demand death. But here, Thomas and Henry would clash several times, as the law was, as Thomas knew, the king's special prerogative. It's often felt that Thomas Beckett changed when he became Archbishop of Canterbury. I personally don't think so, but others can disagree. For me, he'd always been that devout, always been that strong of faith, and he'd always been a man who understood the importance of defending church traditions since he was schooled in the idea that traditions were literally the only defence against tyranny, the old rule of the City of London. The decline in the relationship between the two men was inevitable. You saw it in sermons given by Beckett, or in acts of great political theatre. For example, in October 13th, 1163, in Westminster Abbey, on a Sunday, a grand ceremony took place of moving the body of King Edward the Confessor from his existing tomb to a new shrine on the same spot. It was a mixture of politics and spirituality. Pope Alexander agreed to make Edward the Confessor a saint in return for King Henry agreeing to recognise Pope Alexander as the actual Pope. Edward the Confessor's remains were removed, wrapped in precious silk cloth, and sealed in a new wooden coffin. That coffin was then placed upon the shoulders of King Henry and eight of his barons, and they carried it around the abbey, a majestic bit of theatre which was designed to exclude the Archbishop of Canterbury, and venerated the king and his illustrious predecessor as the spiritual head of the nation. Be that as it may, the relationship continued to take a violent turn for the worse. Henry II felt provoked by Becket at every turn and was in turn exceptionally provocational back. It became for him a matter of principle. The actual merits of the issues between them did not matter so much as the principle of Becket defying him on anything. The words, how dare he, just feel to loom large over everything Henry did at this stage and eventually led to the Council of Clarendon. Now, what was that? Simply put, a gathering where Henry would make it so priests and monks would be under his laws and his rules. Thomas was caught between two sides, a furious king who wanted him to relent on this issue, and the bishops of England who wanted him to stand up for them and their traditional rights. Becket and Henry engaged in a battle of wits, and to be blunt about it, Henry won and Thomas lost. Thomas agreed to the ideas put forward, and actually lost a lot of support from his bishops. And while afterwards Thomas 
had tried to patch up their relationship, something else happened that completely ruined it. The king's brother William had died, and the supposed cause of his death was from pining because he wasn't able to marry a rich widow, and their union had been forbidden by Thomas Becket. It sounds like a nonsense, but Henry and his inner circle actually believed it so. So when the Archbishop of Canterbury had ridden to visit the king at Woodstock, the gates had been slammed in his face. Henry began to really hate Thomas of London at this point, irrational grief mixing with already existing anger. Thomas began planning to flee the country, even trying twice and failing, and this led to what was in effect the king's retribution for it all, a majestic show of force and show trial at Northampton Castle on October the 6th, 1164. Thomas was ambushed by a clearly prepared king and was accused of fraud, of irregular accounting and faced some very serious allegations. There were several bishops present, including the new Bishop of London, and more on him in a moment, and they all suggested he resign to save himself and the church from any shame. Other bishops insisted that Thomas remains in power and said that his resignation would cause greater harm to the English church. The final debacle of this case was one of the great moments of political historical theatre ever seen in English history. Becket rode to the castle in Northampton wearing his formal robes, including his sacred pallium, and he entered the grounds of it. The gates were slammed and locked behind him. Thomas dismounted, and dressed as he was, he strode, brandishing the formal archiepiscopal cross be like a sword in front of him. The king supposedly saw this from a window and went livid. Many wondered why Becket was dressed like this, fearing he was coming to excommunicate the king. As Becket approached the Great Hall, Gilbert Folliot said he always was a fool and always will be, and the Bishop of London then tried to snatch the cross out of Becket's hands, but failed. A weird Mexican standoff transpired. You've got Thomas Becket waiting for what appeared to be a trial to take place in the Great Hall, dressed in his full regalia and carrying this huge cross, and meanwhile, the king and his councillors were trying to organise that trial behind closed doors. Henry, you see, wanted the bishops of England to judge Thomas. But Thomas had issued an order forbidding them from doing so. And so even his enemies within the clergy argued that they couldn't judge him. And this dragged out proceedings as loopholes were discussed and several hours wasted with back and forth discussions. Eventually, Gilbert Folliot suggested a compromise wherein the bishops agreed to send a message to the Pope asking him to judge Thomas Becket, which technically meant they didn't have to disobey the Archbishop of Canterbury's orders. And Henry by this stage was so insistent on just getting Becket on something, he agreed and then moved on to holding a secular trial. Henry's chosen cronies began the trial, but it actually never happened. Thomas, using all the symbolic power of the post, raised the cross he was holding high above his head and exclaimed, It is not for you to judge your archbishop for a crime, and then simply walked from the chamber. With the roars of Henry's supporters behind him, they insulted him and supposedly called him a traitor, leading to a moment where Thomas stumbled over some wood, regained his footing, turned round, screamed back and said, If only I were a knight, my own fist would give you your lie. And then he strode outside. 
The gates to the castle were still locked, but unmanned, so spotting a bunch of keys hanging from a wall, he unlocked it and he rolled out, having utterly defied the king. Thomas returned to the priory he had been staying at and soon found many of his staff quietly asked him to be released from his service, as you know, the king was just about to come down on him like a ton of bricks and would rather not be part of that. That night, defying orders of the king, and after making out he was going to be in prayer all evening, Thomas sent a trusted aide to Canterbury to gather up as much gold and silver as possible, and then he himself made for the coast and exile. This is wild and glorious stuff, but this podcast is to do with the story of London. And while Thomas Beckett was a Londoner, we need to ask, what has this all got to do with London? Well, a lot, because it's time to talk more about Gilbert Foylop, the man who we know opposed Beckett's elevation to the rank of Archbishop, and the guy who tried to wrestle the cross from his hands in Northampton, and who held the Bishopric of London. How did he become Bishop of London? Right. Remember how back in chapter 67 I mentioned how Richard D. Belmius II had taken the seat of the Bishop of London and how he was part of this wide dynastic clan who were all up running St. Paul's as a family business, an extended oligarchical dynasty whose principal source of income seems to be running the diocese and making a bit of money on the side. Well, when he died, guess what? Foylot was part of that dynasty, a distant cousin, sure, but he was related to this extended family, so he was in with them. Gilbert was also a Cluniac monk, and you may remember me mentioning them in detail all the way back in chapter 55, and the English headquarters of the Cluniacs was based down in Bermondsey, so Gilbert had ecclesiastical and familiar links to London and its churchmen. He wasn't a total stranger to the city. He'd been made Bishop of Hereford 12 years beforehand and was probably the leading contender within church circles to be Archbishop of Canterbury when Theobald died, which may go some way to explaining his frustration that a man who wasn't even a priest should take the title. Beckett and others said Gilbert had been motivated by jealousy. That may be true. But soon after Thomas became Archbishop, he and King Henry threw Foylot a bone. It was soon after Becket's elevation that Henry II wrote to the Pope asking to make Gilbert a royal confessor, and this tied into the reasons to nominate him as Bishop of London. Now Bishop Richard had died. See, according to the King's reckoning, if Bishop Gilbert was to be a royal confessor and advisor to him, it would be better if he was close at hand in London than all the way over in Hereford, near Wales. And Becket had agreed to that, and so Gilbert was elevated to the post of Bishop of London on March 6, 1163. Now, there were some shenanigans involved in this. I mean, firstly, the papacy really did not like bishops moving from one place to another, so a formal position had to be asked for. This being said, it helped that the powers that be in London's diocese approved his selections. I mean, he was family, of course they did. But when Beckett was unable to attend the ceremony, it gave Gilbert a little bit of wriggle room. See, when you became a bishop, you swore an oath of obedience to the Archbishop of Canterbury. But Gilbert didn't. The way he argued it, he'd made an oath to a Archbishop of Canterbury way back in 1148, when he'd become Bishop of Hereford. So technically, he didn't need to make a second one. Now, did he? 
Gilbert, however, was motivated by more than just the dislike of the new archbishop. His ambition was clearly evident based on what he did immediately after becoming bishop. See, Gilbert actually tried to make the Diocese of London independent of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he did so by reviving an old argument. All the way back in Chapter 6 of the Story of London, I described how King Senwulf of Mercia had tried to get London established as the seat of the English Church, with the Archbishop of Canterbury replaced by a new Archbishop of London. And he got the idea by tying into the original plan of Pope Gregory all the way back in the 6th century. And it was all the way back in chapter 3 of this podcast. I mentioned how Gregory's missionaries had come to England and had planned to set up base in Londonwick, the old Saxon trading town, but how the king of the East Saxons at the time was a pagan called Schled, and Schled was hostile towards these Christians, and so they had ended up setting up their headquarters in the Jutish kingdom of Kent to the south, and this was why Canterbury was the bastion of Christian power in England and the seat of the archbishop. So Bishop Gilbert basically asked the Pope if maybe that idea could raise its head again, and London could become the centre of the Christian faith, as it always had been. Yeah, yeah, Pope Alexander was having none of this. Like, no, just no. But Gilbert soon found that any grandiose ideas he had were superseded by the developing rows between Henry and Thomas Becket. Gilbert had originally sided with his fellow bishops and Becket over the issue of priests being tried in secular courts, and at the Council of Westminster in 1163 we see it. But then afterwards, he'd not only swapped sides to support the king on the issue, he seems to have led, if not caused others, to also side against Becket. And when Becket went into exile, well, King Henry sent a large team of loyal clerics, including the Archbishop of York, the bishops of Worcester and Exeter, and Gilbert, alongside the Earl of Arundel, to prevent both the French king and the Pope siding with Becket, or even giving him an exile. The meeting didn't go well for Gilbert. Apparently, when he spoke first and began to criticise Becket, Pope Alexander publicly sharply rebuked him and accused him of being motivated simply by spite. Such a public rebuke stung, and Gilbert soon stopped speaking. The Pope, however, refused to side with Becket or with the king, even when at one point Becket removed the archbishop's ring and handed it to the Pope, Alexander had even refused to accept his resignation. The Pope really didn't want this to be happening. So he insisted that Becket should remain as archbishop, but should spend his days at the Cistercian monastery of Puntingi, and that both sides should work towards a reconciliation. With Thomas Becket gone from English shores, Bishop Gilbert of London stepped up and became arguably the most important cleric in England. It fell to him to collect and send the annual tribute of the English church to Rome. Meanwhile, the king, when Becket fled, confiscated the archbishop's estates and the monies that came in from these Gilbert was placed in charge of also. But being so closely linked to the king meant that Gilbert was seen as part of a very draconian regime. See, Henry was furious at Thomas's defiance, and his response is, well, horrifying. The king decreed that 
anyone found carrying letters to and from the Pope without the direct permission of the king was to be ordered hung or, if on the coast, placed in a boat without oars and left in the sea. And Henry sent men to seize not just Becket's estates in Canterbury, but the estates of his servants and his relatives. In London, several dozen of the Becket family and retainers, including Thomas's sisters, Agnes and Rose, and their children were arrested in their homes and dumped in a thieves' jail overnight, which we assume is the new prison upon the fleet. And then they were frog-marched to a coast, stuck on a boat, and were told to just keep going until they reached Pointingy. There were ways out of the king's fury, usually by paying a large fine or by renouncing ties to Becket, but still, Henry had spoken and that was that. And because of this, Becket blamed both Bishop Gilbert and the Archbishop of York for the confiscations, yet some historians maintain that Gilbert was motivated by simply wanting church revenues to be spent on religious purposes. Yet to Becket's eyes, he was part of Henry's brutal regime. In exile, Thomas began to change. He lost weight, he grew a beard, and he also retaliated. He excommunicated several of the men who worked for the king, including the man who mishandled his family. And by the summer of 1165, Pope Alexander was twice writing to Bishop Gilbert, demanding he intercedes with the king. But Bishop Gilbert of London's hands were tied. The king was in no mood for forgiveness and had no tolerance for any attempt at intercession. Henry's mood had become even darker. In 1166, for example, when he faced a baron's uprising in Brittany, Henry had angrily snapped and forced the Lord of Brittany to abdicate his position so Henry could place his 10-year-old son Geoffrey into it. And it was in that mood that he discovered a young man called Herbert of Bossom was carrying letters into England for Becket. So he had him jailed. And in jail, the jailers had tore at Herbert of Bosham's eyes with their fingertips until they bled, and then they poured boiling water into his mouth, scalding him and leaving him disfigured for life. In this light, Bishop Gilbert, later accusing Becket of having bought his title, seems quite a tame response. Effectively, the Bishop of London was now the de facto head of the English Church, in fact, if not in law. But, ironically, Bishop Gilbert's loyalty to the king allowed them to get on, and his advice was perhaps the only reason Henry didn't send our men to kill Becket. Still, with a rival anti-pope out there, Henry could use the threat of throwing his support behind him to keep Pope Alexander from siding too heavily with Becket. Although I will say at one point, Henry's ambassadors threatened he would convert to Islam if the Pope didn't suspend Becket as Archbishop of Canterbury, which personally I would have loved to have seen. Over the next few years, the Bishop of London became Henry II's chief spiritual advisor. Becket took to referring to him as Judas. He was easily the most powerful theological foe of Becket's, his enmity was based on personal animosity, but his main weapon was that he, to quote contemporaries, was, quote, armed with eloquence, unquote. And his words certainly struck home. In the ongoing war of words between Henry II's supporters and Becket, Gilbert had actually written the following, quote, 
How kind our Lord the King was to you! To what renown he raised you up from poverty and received you into his intimate favour! If instead he receives a battle-axe where he was hoping for security, what reports of you will be on everyone's lips? How will the story of such an unprecedented betrayal go down in history? Unquote. Gilbert slurred deliberately intended with a sideswipe at Beckett's heritage. The king had raised them up from poverty, which exactly summed up the criticism of his low-born status. As we have seen, Thomas of London was not born into poverty, but this was indicative of Henry's arrogance and disdain for the Becket family. Thomas wrote a reply to the Bishop of London, quote, It is a matter of the greatest astonishment, stupefying in fact, that someone like you, a prudent man, ostensibly learned and a monk, should so blatantly, not to say irreverently, deny truth, resist justice, and in every way possible ignore the difference between right and wrong, unquote. Gilbert could only respond by scoring points by pointing out one point where Beckett was being criticised by others, and that was his choice to go into exile. Quote, what did you achieve by these actions, except that you very carefully avoided the death which no one thought to inflict, unquote. These two men of God engaged in this battle of wit, while King Henry increased his political actions, and acting in a way that fully convinces me he was throwing a mammoth king-sized temper tantrum, including at one point threatening to castrate any priest who refused to denounce the archbishop. And while the king was doing this, Gilbert, Bishop of London, was leading the intellectual crusade against the London-born Archbishop of Canterbury. On April the 13th, 1169, Becket finally retaliated with the ultimate sanction. He excommunicated Bishop Gilbert, along with several others, without warning. In this excommunication, Becket actually calls Bishop Gilbert, quote, that wolf in sheep's clothing, unquote. Bishop Gilbert had confidently appealed to his fellow bishops of England for support, but discovered they seemed to be, well, weary is the correct word. Gilbert was excommunicated. This was still a big thing. It took Folliot almost a year's solid work, including travelling to get as far as Milan to get this excommunication lifted. But while he was doing it, he was still working closely with the king, because between them, they were going to speed up the coronation of the king's son, Prince Henry. Yep, the king still wanted this to happen. Still wanted Prince Henry to be crowned King Henry III, king-in-waiting. And so in 1170, he went all out to get it done again. And this time, Henry II was determined to stop at nothing to get it done. So he sailed from Normandy on March the 3rd, 1170, through vicious storms, which actually wrecked several ships that were travelling with him, and over 400 men, including his own personal physician, were drowned. He ignored it, and ignoring what some could see as an ominous potent, Henry had gathered his nobles and arranged for his son, the now 15-year-old Prince Henry, to be crowned in Westminster Abbey on Sunday the 14th of June. Prince Henry was knighted, and the king closed all of England's ports. 
and he had his wife, Queen Eleanor, lead a purge of anyone suspected of being a dissenter over this. Simply put, King Henry knew he did not have permission to crown his son king without either A, the Pope's blessing, and or B, the Archbishop of Canterbury there. But he didn't care. He closed the ports. He forbade people with known links to the papacy from sending correspondence. And he pressed ahead with the coronation. And so strict were these moves that it created a wonderfully awkward moment. You see, Prince Henry was engaged to the French princess, Margaret. And she was supposed to come to London and be crowned alongside him as the future Queen of England. And it was so well known that this was going on that the citizens of London had paid for her and all her female attendants to be decked in an ornate and beautifully made coronation robes that she would wear during the ceremony and her procession through the streets where they would shout huzzah upon her. But so strict and sudden had been the king's ban on ships coming to and from England, she'd been forgotten about and left literally at the docks in Normandy. And rather than riding in procession in her beautiful dress through the streets of London, the young princess raged about being ignored and went back to her father, the King of France, and he understandably also went apoplectic with fury. And do you know what? It was all for nothing. Because somebody got through the daughter of the late King Stephen, Mary of Bois, was not just a royal princess, she was also a respected nun. And she willingly carried letters and slipped through Henry's blockade and hand-delivered to Bishop Gilbert, as well as others, a decree from the Pope banning the coronation of the young king-to-be. Still, Gilbert had gone too far now, so he and others decided to ignore the ban and to great pomp, Henry III, in waiting, was crowned and Richard de Lucy was appointed as Justicar to rule England in the event of Henry II dying before the kid came of age and Henry had finally won. Well, kind of. The Pope and Thomas Becket issued an interdict upon England for this act and having managed to annoy not just the Pope but the King of France as well, Henry was finally willing to come back to talks to negotiate a settlement with Becket and... They did. They reconciled them. Henry still hated Becket, but he could not afford to be in conflict with him. So Thomas of London returned to England for the last time. Him and the king reconciled. Five months later, Tom would be dead. When Thomas returned, he found the men who had sided with the king were still furious with him. Violence seemed to hang in the air like a constant threat. Thomas was greeted like a hero by many in Canterbury and then decided to ride to the city of his birth, London. Thomas of London was on his way to Windsor to be reconciled with Prince Henry, a.k.a. King Henry III-to-be, a.k.a. Henry of Woodstock. And his arrival in London was explosive as the people seemed to embrace their wayward and errant son. Over 3,000 residents came out to meet him. They rang the bells, organs were played, choirs sang out, Te Deum Lordamas, and he was followed by a procession, perhaps meeting him three miles from the city. And in the face of this explosive public support, Thomas received instructions before he even arrived from the young 
Prince Henry that he was forbidden to enter any town or city in England. He could not pass the walls of the city of his birth. He could not cross the bridge. Thomas ended up having to stay in the palace of Bishop Henry of Winchester. You may remember I've mentioned him, the old kingmaker and brother of King Stephen, and his palace, which is Winchester Palace in Southwark. But eventually Thomas realised that he'd earned the scorn of the young man he'd once been so close to, and so returned to Canterbury, with rumours of assassination attempts swirling about him. But before Thomas had come, he'd not just been idle, he'd actually issued three excommunications upon three bishops, the bishops of Salisbury, the Archbishop of York, and above all, Gilbert, the Bishop of London. And he did this because they had been the people who had crowned Prince Henry. So Gilbert had been excommunicated again. And it's worth noting that London had just seen a London-born archbishop excommunicate their city's bishop twice recently, and how they felt about it, I think we've just seen in their response. London, clearly a lot of London, still sided with the man from Cheapside. Yet the three bishops, rather upset at the situation, had set sail south to find the king and complain. And they did find him in France, and Henry went truly mad with fury, and it was during the deliberations at his court over the issue that he said, but he never actually said who will rid me of this troublesome priest. There are a few counts of what he did, but the one I feel that captures it best was the one given by a source called Edward Grimm, who said what the king is reported to have said was, quote, what miserable drones and traitors have I nourished and prompted in my realm who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born clerk, a man who has eaten my bread, who came to my court poor and I have raised him high. Now he dares draw his heel to kick me in the teeth. He has shamed my kin, shamed my realm. My grief goes to my heart, and no one has avenged me, unquote. Here we see Henry, as always, filled with contempt. It was bad enough that the Archbishop of Canterbury was defying him, but Thomas Becket was just a Londoner, and to King Henry, they were all low-born. It was a temper tantrum, and to be honest, it said such things before. It was just bad luck that with the king that day were people who did not understand that King Henry did this from time to time. You, the policy was you allowed him to explode, throw things about, but you never acted on it. However, four minor knights heard these words and decided to act on behalf of their king. And they slipped away, barely noticeable, so unimportant were they. And they set sail for England, and they rode to Canterbury. And there, messily, they murdered Thomas Becket. Bishop Gilbert immediately found himself facing the wrath of a pope who was struck with incredulity that this issue had actually turned to fatal violence. Henry II had originally tried to style it out, but a fresh interdiction and a demand to absolve himself via contrition seemed enough for the king to realise Becket was now way more powerful dead than alive. Bishop Gilbert's excommunication was confirmed, but he knew he'd eventually gain absolution for it, 
All he had to do was swear he had no hand or say in violence against Thomas Becket. In the end, Gilbert was allowed to stay as Bishop of London until 1187. He remained in post, was known to have gone blind during the 1180s, and while he remained a respectable academic, and while he made damn sure that the dynasty who ran the Bishopric of London remained in power with his cousins and nephews getting plum prebendary positions, he could never escape the shadow of Thomas of London, a shadow that loomed large over him and the city around him. And why all of this? Why spend so much time talking about this single London-born man and his strange story and his clear failure as Archbishop of Canterbury? Because I think he symbolised something genuinely special. And I think he was special for London. And I think we see that in what I believe was the most pivotal moment of his life. When Thomas of London returned to the city of his birth, of his youth, after years in exile, and after years where Becket's character, loyalty and judgment had been questioned by all, had been besmirched and assassinated by the great men of the realm, including London's own bishop, upon sight of him, the city had come out to meet him and the city had rung their bells. Those bells, those bells which had been used to signal London's defiance towards King Henry's own mother, Matilda. The bells of London, which symbolise their support of lost causes. I think that moment, as powerful it was, so alarming that the young heir to the throne had actually banned Thomas from entering the city, forcing him to view it from the south bank and gaze upon its streets from Southwark for the last time. I think that moment showed us that London sided with Beckett. Sure, maybe not the oligarchs of the city, but for the regular residents of the city, the ones who had not power or wealth, the deeply religious, deeply conservative, these are our rights and we'll defy anyone to keep them residents of London. I think he became symbolic of London's spirit of defiance. That snarling London, the one that sides with the underdog, the one that was, I feel, in the moment as they sang hymns and rang their many bells and came out in their thousands to see him, that London, I think the only way to describe what the city felt for him would be the term, go on, my son. It's hard to explain. You have to love London and know London to get it, maybe. But London embraced him. And so he became, at that moment, let alone in his later life and his later martyrdom, the living patron saint of London. And you see this carried on because St. Thomas Becket, as he was known, was to become a huge figure in London's history going forward. And if nothing else, if that alone was to be Thomas of London's benediction, well, it's not a bad one, from London's perspective anyway. And that's it. This has been long enough. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you could follow the story. Uh, more of the story of London coming up. I've got a few more episodes. I know I said I would do this one within 48 hours of the last one, but things got busy, and I am promised for weeks, and I'm finally getting round to it. I am finally updating all the old scripts and putting them up on Imja so people can read along as well as listen along or go back and look at pictures and maps and so forth. Sorry I've been tardy doing that. 
it's just been very crazy and very busy. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you next time for another episode of The Story of London.